Oh, grip it and rip it, baby. Um, <laughs> sorry, I probably could have just like talked over that and or cut it out in the edit. Edit, but like, what was I gonna do? Not take the chance to make an Adventure Zone reference? Uh, hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a room with scotch and also mineral water or something. Um, I am Ethan Bartlett, and uh, no, Michael, come back, come back. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, who are you, Michael? Uh, I, I'm here, and yes, I knew exactly how you would react to that. So. <laughs> okay, so you did time that deliberately. Playing you like a fiddle. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering what I why I was wearing all this cat gut. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that's Michael, and that's the last you'll hear of him uh, this episode. Uh, he has lost by... Wait, no, Ethan! Why am I here? Why did you bring me here? Uh, we'll discuss on? that later, and by happen? that I mean I'll discuss it, and you'll just listen mm. on mute. Um, I was going to say, Michael has lost the episode by making the host mad, and also the editor mad. So this was like sort of a double, uh, <laughs> double miscalculation on his part. Um, and so his punishment is he just gets to sit in silence while I rant for an hour. Uh, and before Michael Again, says it, it seems like you're just punishing yourself. Uh, okay. I was going to say before Michael says it, like, yes, that's not very different from his experience of our friendship. Low these, uh, however many years. <laughs> um, anyway, yes, we are back. It's part two of, uh, the haunting of Hill house. Part four of us drinking Glenmorangie, uh, mm-hmm. the original, uh, Highland Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, t- age 10, 10 years. Um, uh, yeah, which we'll discuss more at the end. Anything you wanted to say about Glenmorangie here at the at the top? No, I don't talk about Scotch right now. I'll talk about it later. That's correct. Uh, that was a test. You did pass this one. Um, so you're back down to negative double digits instead of negative triple digits. Uh, oh, well, that's good. That's a pretty good uh, progression there that I'm making. You know. I'm proud of myself. Yeah, I mean, you shouldn't be, but uh, <laughs> take what you can get, I guess. Um, yeah, that said, uh, this is a very strict podcast that does have rules, not the ones I just made up, um, admittedly. Uh, don't tell Michael I said that. But uh, mm-hmm. my my wife is standing by, antsy, waiting to, to read them. Thank you, dear. Uh... Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, 
then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. That said, let us uh, pour this pour this stuff. And uh, here's mud in your eye. Skunk. All right. So, Michael, two weeks ago, um, mm -hmm. when we last discussed this book, I wrote myself a note because I didn't trust myself to uh, remember something 20 minutes, I mean two weeks later. Um, and I wrote it appropriately enough on the back or on, on like one of the blank back pages of my copy of The Haunting of Hill House. The note Great. says, is someone slash who is gaslighting Eleanor? Which is uh -huh. an idea I brought up and sort of dismissed last episode in one of the remarks I had. Um, and you brought back up in a way that implied that you were not so quick to dismiss it as I was. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know how much more you have to say about that. And if, if it's nothing or not very much, we can move on to something else. But I would just like to, because to, we kind of ran out of time last time, I'd like to give you a chance to follow up on any uh, remarks you didn't get to say about that idea uh, last time. Well, I appreciate that opportunity. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's... There's a lot of ambiguity about this book, so one could bring that question up and dismiss it just as quickly uh, about Eleanor being gaslighted. Uh, Gaslit, I What's the would assume tense? would be in the past tense. I don't know. What's the past tense? Someone past gaslighting tense. Eleanor. Anyway. I think I think that's I've been phrasing it that way intentionally um, to avoid yeah. this whole discussion, <laughs> or at least question. <laughs> Any the discussion is interesting to you and to me, possibly not to anyone else, but right. Uh, yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> but, um. So and but but the fact of how much ambiguity this novel embraces and just sits comfortably in, I think it's worth questioning a little bit more. Because you mentioned that there was a good possibility that say the doctor could be gaslighting Eleanor, for instance, because she is. Uh, she, he he knows a, a little bit about her history, and so could be setting up some of this this stuff. Theodora seems sketchy in a lot of ways. Luke seems sketchy in a lot of ways. There are a lot of sketchy characters all around. Um, when you meet the doctor's wife, she seems yeah. uh, like she could be gaslighting uh, Eleanor too, and and it, it almost seems like a perfect formula for gaslighting the way things come about because when um 
Mrs. Montague shows up and has this like seance and Ouija board reading. Um, the the language that comes out of this speaks of the mother-child relationship, which we've already learned is so key to Eleanor's identity. And so it seems like it's just perfectly set up for that to be a gaslighting situation, almost a, a conspiratorial I was gonna, gaslighting. I, I mean, even if it's not, like, gaslighting per se, um, it almost could be different kinds of manipulation um gaslighting specifically i mean gaslighting is a valid question to ask in the sense that like eleanor at the very least goes crazy by the end of the novel like i think that's fair to say um i you know i try to Mm -hmm. the the to deem someone crazy or to say that like someone is crazy like those kinds of terms often strike me as unhelpful in first of all the way that they have been used to gaslight people throughout history particularly women um but Mm. you know it's it's fair to say that like eleanor's uh, beliefs and behavior by certainly the last few pages of the novel are completely irrational um whether Mm -hmm. This is something that she started out with, that, like, this is something that's been true throughout, I think is is a valid debate. Um, sure. You, you know, I think it's, I think you can, you can make a strong case one way or the other, or possibly both. Um, I forget where I was going with this, so please, yeah. please continue, Michael. That's okay. Well, I, I think it's, you can see that arc in Eleanor, or it's maybe just a decline in terms of sanity, especially. And you can ask that question about who's gaslighting her or who's manipulating her one way or another. Um, she's certainly the most obvious character for that analysis, but I think you can discuss that in relationship to any other character in the book, too to a little bit of a lesser extent but the fact that there's so much unsaid so much in the background uh and unspoken about the these characters that like any other side character could be could be examined in the same way just i I, it would be an interesting exercise to see how unhinged theodora is becoming or luke is becoming or the doctor is becoming as the book progresses um but it's most obvious with eleanor and most significant with eleanor too i I think it's it's most important to see it with her but as to the question of who if anyone is gaslighting her uh, i i think besides the other residents of the house for the majority of the book and the doctor's wife um and even the the servants uh, who are there too? The um, whatever their names are, I can't remember. The, it doesn't um, matter. Um, yeah. I, I think you can also question whether Eleanor is gaslighting herself. Sure. Uh, yeah. Or I think that's a valid answer mm-hmm. to the question that I posed. Yeah. Or related to that, not necessarily exclusive of that, whether her mother 
is gaslighting her and or her sister is gaslighting her um i mean now uh and this i don't i don't want to like try to you know i don't know uh uh harp on what could be a slip of the tongue but you said her mother is gaslighting her i said that deliberately Um, okay uh because that you know i i made a a what was definitely just a slip in the last episode um implying that her mother exists in present te- tense mm-hmm. in this text even though um b- by sort of a surface level interpretation she doesn't she right. died before the story proper commences correct um excuse me so if her mother is gaslighting her present tense within within the action of the story um that doesn't just imply a supernatural element it brings it in sort of whole hog as it were or or and and i i i'm not excluding that possibility because that's 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 definitely there that perhaps her mother is haunting her um right or the effects of her mother are still gaslighting her, which is why I say it's not exclusive of Eleanor gaslighting herself. Right. I mean, you could, again, you can kind of, and, you know, this is, this is where Jackson's genius in, and not to like, let everyone, you know, mark off a, a square on the (laughs) Michael and Ethan bingo sheet, but like, this is where Jackson in this novel reminds me of Gene Wolfe mm-hmm. um, in the sense that like Jackson sets up so much stuff and implies so many answers, some of which contradict each other that like the real, I mean, you know, it's, it's the real journey is the interpretations we met along the way. Right? <laughs> like, um, in many very real ways, this is sort of a, a puzzle box book in the way that, some of some of Gene Wolfe's both novels and short stories are puzzle boxes that have solutions, and some of them are puzzle boxes where the whole point is the the um, sort of fiddling with the puzzle, mm-hmm. as it were. Um, and I think this one really uh, that Haunting of Hill House really follows that second idea in a lot of ways. Um, in that, you know, it's a it's a um, you know those things that, like, as a kid who grew up in the 90s, hashtag whatever, um, you had those, like, kaleidoscope things that you would hold up to your eye and they were, like, a long tube, and then if you turned them, like... Yeah, kaleidoscopes. They're all very abstract. Yeah, yeah, you, you turn them and they would turn into something else. It's like that. Like, you can you can hold this book up to your eye from one perspective and, and everything kind of fits in a certain way, and then you turn it and everything fits in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Um... So I think there is, yeah, a lot of that in this book. And I think that the ways that Jackson pulls that off um, create this, like, atmosphere to the book that oh, yeah. maybe what the the real haunting of Hill House is for the reader in mm-hmm. the sense that, like, there's so much here that does haunt you that you can't quite figure out or put a finger on. Um that that i i want to point out that that's explicit in the book and i did just find the the passage too uh it's in chapter five um just a couple pages in um 
the doctor they're, they're having um, just a, a conversation um, and they were they're, they're discussing whether something happened and I forget exactly what it what it was but some some encounter some event from the previous night um, and the the doctor says this the doctor frowned this excitement trouble troubles me he said it is intoxicating certainly but might it not also be dangerous an effect of the atmosphere of hill house the first sign that we have as it were fallen under a spell um so just that that idea like you mentioned of the this atmosphere this this quality this yeah. um ambiance um or aura around the house slash novel <laughs> right um it's i guess there. yeah and i i think i posed several kind of counterfactuals in the last episode and i don't want to like uh, uh do that too much in this episode but i suppose part of the gaslighting question um has to do with what jackson implies but never follows through on like you know, I talked about if if this were a Conan Doyle, like a specifically a Sherlock Holmes mystery, you know, a lot of what's in the narrative could be in here in a very similar way and it would play out differently. And you, you know, yeah. you talked about um, the doctor and Luke and Theodora all have, um, uh, you know, different ways that they seem to be slowly coming unhinged. Um in different ways that, like, they could be gaslighting Eleanor. Yeah. Uh, and, like, all of that, I I any one of those things would make more sense if there were ever, like, a clear motivation given. Right. Like, Luke could be, you know, he's, like, I think that it's implied that the family, that or his, his family has, you know, some amount of wealth, and, I mean, he could be easily, like, uh, uh, you know, the 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 scion of a rich family, but whose whose wealth has been depleted. And if Eleanor were herself from a rich family or something like, he could be trying to gaslight her into marrying him or something like that. Um, or conning, you know, trying to make her do damage mm -hmm. to the house in a way that would force her to pay an exorbitant amount for its repair. Any number of things like that. Um, but she has nothing the, to offer. Right. Uh. You know, Theodora could be... Um, Theodora is definitely coded either lesbian or bisexual. I think you can make an argument for both. Mm -hmm. um, and so Theodora could be... What's that? There's a potential there, anyway. That, I mean, like, I, think that I think it's... I think it's... Character. For it's the borderline era. Borderline explicit. For the era, it's, like, almost explicit. Yeah. Um, yeah. For our era, it would be maybe less so, but... Um, sure yeah like so there's that so you know you could argue that that she's somehow trying to trying to emotionally manipulate eleanor um in that like you know she wants she wants her she she has some kind of romantic interest in her or something um yeah. and you can swap these out like the you know if eleanor were rich theodora could be manipulating her for her wealth just in a different sure. way um the, the, that all seems without with the amount of information we're given, Theodora and Luke both fall flat for me as yep. um, 
people who are manipulating her. The one external uh, idea that does occur to me, and again, it would make some sense with the thing I brought up last episode, which is that, like, if the Doctor is indeed trying to sort of scientifically study, like, what's going on in this house, he seems like he's inherently muddling the waters by bringing in people who have past Mm -hmm. experience with supernatural phenomena. Um, Like, but a, a thing that has occurred to me and that would fit in with some interpretations of, like, the title that we talked about last episode, um, you know, what if he's actually, this is all just him trying to study, uh, 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 Eleanor. What if he knows about the, the supernatural phenomena that, that has, you know, happened around Eleanor and, um, you know, that's somehow, uh, he set all of this up, even including like picking out Hill House as like a spot mm. that might be most likely to activate her powers or phenomena or whatever you want to call it. Sure. You know, and brought her there. And he's cl- he's the one that in the text we know has done some research on these people, just so, mm-hmm. you know, in order to know that they're the ones he supposedly wants to pick. Um, you know, what if... Uh, uh this is actually all a study of Eleanor. Now I don't mm. I don't I don't know how strongly I want to argue for that theory in the sense that like uh I don't know, it just doesn't seem very fulfilling ultimately. Like it doesn't uh, yeah. seem like there's a ton of payoff I, for it. I think there's a certain amount of validity to it. Uh, there, there's the. It's stated pretty explicitly that the the doctor is not as reputable as he wants to be, and yeah. people are, you know, laughing off his theories and such. And so this would be kind of an in for him to prove it, you know, quote unquote, that he's right. You know, by bringing Eleanor in, gaslighting her, making her extra crazy, he can say, "Look what this haunted house has done to this poor woman." Um and prove his his theory in in that way but it does fall flat and in text it falls flat too because um the way it all falls out for eleanor and we can say this might be a result of his hubris perhaps but it does not help him right um well i mean the 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 best argument for it or at least the most like rationalizing argument for it would be that you know I mean, it doesn't help him, and that could be, if he is manipulating Eleanor, then he's basically the antagonist, and it could be his defeat mm. as the antagonist. Sure. And then if we assume that Eleanor is the main character, and the specifically the main viewpoint character, like, you know, it, it becomes the tragedy of Eleanor, certainly, but, like, her death yeah. then, you know, cuts us off from knowing any kind of resolution where it would be revealed that that was the professor's, you know, um, idea. And it it would be kind of a, kind of a Romeo and Juliet ending, um, in the sense that like Eleanor's story ends in tragedy and she dies, but she still does bring down the, the villain that is the, the professor. Um, so, you know, I say Romeo and Juliet in the sense that like they die, but 
there's the like but their deaths accomplish accomplish a positive a positive goal. yeah I, I again yeah. I don't really like that interpretation I don't I just don't think it no what no I'm agreeing uh, yeah. with you I, I don't I don't love it I, I can see it being possible it and I would respect any undergrad who wrote a paper analyzing the book on those yeah grounds. you could make an, an especially again an analysis argument for it I think that's why I don't like it though in the sense that like it works on an analysis level but not on a deeper like thematic level it doesn't really Mm-hmm. to me support any of the themes or ideas right that come up it it works Here, more on the level of like fan fiction almost like if this were the yeah. if this were the sort of book that you wrote fan fiction about like <laughs> i could see and maybe this is a new like implied segment because we have the long running implied segment of like what grad school paper would we write about this this is like what fan fiction would we write about this and it would be what like fan fiction you know just and it'd be real short ish well i mean i guess whatever but you know writing a coda to this book a, a five page short story where the just one extra yeah, chapter where the professor is like drat that one didn't work now on to my next in the file of like weird girls who have mm-hmm. poltergeisty stuff that i think i can manipulate whatever you know something like that we, we definitely had that homework assignment in English class in yeah. high school to write an extra chapter to a book. It's it's not inherently a bad assignment, but it's also not like... like it, it annoyed me, but <laughs> <laughs> it was fine. It would depend on... To me, it would depend on like the wording of the assignment and even the the work yeah. that was in question. Because um, like, there are some works that I think cry out more for that sort of thing and some works that absolutely militate sure. against it. Um yeah that said like it's not a terrible assignment for like a brief homework assignment for an english class it's not a valid way of like analyzing an entire book especially at an advanced level no it's more of an internal exercise to enhance one's own analysis in fact i would almost like with that like prefer it be a creative writing assignment rather than a a, like english analysis assignment um yeah I, I I think there's at least crossover in some sort of Venn diagram yeah. there. Uh, and this um, has been your preview, gentle listener, of uh, Michael and Ethan's homework specials. If you want to hear more, submit your homework. It, I'll, I'll tell you later. Anyway, <laughs> go on, please. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the, so the, this theory of making the, the doctor the gaslighter um, does fall flat ultimately and here's part of what it robs the text of Mm -hmm. i think um uh, well it might not but i I think it it does ultimately um is the thematic emphasis on eleanor's emotional journey Mm. and by, by having this external influence uh invade that emotional journey which you know that's it's a a valid thing to to do in a text it's fine if it's textually appropriate but i don't think it suits it here because there is already a parallel that continues whether the doctor exists as a motivating factor or not and that is this going back to this waiting aspect I, i this this is a thing that um, I think it's just so central to the text. And here's just one more aspect to it connected with the character of Eleanor is her past. Um, 
and the the fact that she took care of her mother for something like 11 years while her mother was dying slash an invalid um it's an absurd amount of time for this woman in like basically the entirety of her 20s uh, to be just caring for her mother. She has no life except to care for her mother. And so that whole time, that whole decade plus, is Eleanor wondering what's going to happen. Eleanor waiting for her mother to die and waiting for life to happen. Um, and then that branches out, and you can see that in her kind of romantic yearnings for Luke which, like, are, are there, but then just as quickly dismissed and destroyed. Um, so she, she's looking for a fictional sort of life that she should have had or should have had the opportunity to explore for the past decade plus wasn't afforded that opportunity um and it's compressed into this brief period of time at hill house yeah um uh i well and and this ties into the question of does eleanor gaslight herself which would mean that she's not doing it intentionally right to, to gaslight oneself you can't you cannot intentionally gaslight yourself um and so she would have to be unintentionally doing that and it would have to be subconsciously and that i think could potentially hey google pause the roomba sorry about that <laughs> that could potentially um that That could potentially be considered from this aspect of Eleanor's past that she feels as though she's missed out on so much real life that she's been forced to wait that now again she's in the situation where she is waiting, which feels natural to her, but she has to populate it with her fantasy. And once you bring in from there the potentially supernatural aspects of her as a person like Mm -hmm. the fantasies you know maybe manifest and you got to kind of where i was not necessarily trying to guide us but where i was kind of trying to uh uh at least whittle us down to by eliminating the less likely and less interesting approaches to what's going on with eleanor um uh, though uh, I, I think Theodora may have a bigger role than we've maybe mentioned so far, but um, certainly yeah. I, I don't know that Theodora necessarily has to do direct. Like, I don't think Theodora is the answer to who is gaslighting Eleanor, but if it's not her and it's not Luke and it's not the doctor, sure. um, we're left with Eleanor or her mother or maybe some of the side characters, but uh, I think they would be, you know, part of uh something bigger that's going on just based on the amount of sort of screen time that they get as it were um sure so yeah i think i think ultimately we're left with the most compelling case 
being either uh, Eleanor's mother is gaslighting her or is haunting her, or Eleanor is gaslighting herself or is haunting herself. Um, and, yeah. you know, uh, uh, gaslighting is a term that um, was is drawn from a film that came out before this book did, but it really only entered into popular culture in the last few years. Um, uh, there's, there's instances of it in like, like professional, uh, uh, like psychological trade, not trade magazines, but, but journals and, and such, um, <laughs> a few times, but like, this would not necessarily have been in, even if it wasn't Shirley Jackson's lexicon, it would not have been in like her popular readers lexicon. Um, so, right. uh, there is, there is that, but, uh, you know, the idea that, uh, the haunting of Hill House not only is Eleanor, but it's Eleanor essentially through the character of Hill House haunting herself, I think has a lot of, uh, uh power to it. Um, and I think, yeah, it, yeah. It, it is tied into this idea of waiting. Like, you're absolutely right that, you know, this is, this is a situation that people in real life, uh, uh, end up in when you have like someone who you know whether it's a, a parent or a, a child or you know sometimes a spouse like where they have like a, a medical condition that they just need a constant caretaker and you can end up in kind of this this rut almost and mm -hmm. um, you know there's there's very positive ways that that manifests but it, it can turn negative very quickly if you have the wrong person or the you know wrong situation mm -hmm. uh when you were talking i admit i was a uh, uh trying to remember or trying to google my way to what film i was trying to remember as an example of another story like this oh. um which is and i figured it out it's now voyager starring betty davis which is kind of a i mean very much rather a, a mm -hmm. melodrama um uh from 1942 i believe um uh and essentially betty davis plays like a a, a daughter of a i'm just reading from the wikipedia plot summary um the daughter of an aristocr aristocratic boston <laughs> dowager whose verbal and emotional abuse has contributed to uh betty davis's character's complete lack of self-confidence um and mm. it's a whole thing. I, I think the, the mother maybe doesn't necessarily have a medical condition, but, like, she, you know, it dominates the the daughter. Uh, um, yeah. You know, so that's an example. Uh, my, my mother brought Now Voyager up um, when I was uh, telling her about a Martin McDonough play. I believe the play was. Hmm. I should have uh, looked this up sooner, but um, the play may have been a skull in in Connemara, which is a play about like uh, an Irish mother who, you know, has a has sort of a, a mm -hmm. medical condition that her daughter, you know, lives with her in order to care for her and and. Over the course of the play, some pretty horrific things happen, as you might expect if you're familiar with Martin McDonough's 
uh, especially mm-hmm. theatrical oeuvre. <laughs> um, but you know, so this it's a it's a trope that comes up in both fiction and in in films. Um, and the interesting thing to me about this uh, book is that like that's not the story; that's the backstory. Um, that that this is almost right. like, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of a good example, but you know, maybe maybe a, a John Wick sort of a, a thing. Um, and bear with me in this analogy, but like, <laughs> you know, where you have a story where John Wick is like a retired assassin or whatever, right? So he has this whole trove of stories behind him, but when the when the story of his movie begins, like that's in the past, right? Something like that. Um, where it's like a different, almost a different genre of story lies in the character's past that's being brought in here. And it's like, uh, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, this melodrama that could have been completely earthy, earthly, uh, not supernatural at all is used as background to inform this, this, uh, 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 you know what happens in the in the present day quote unquote in the real time of the story um which leads me to like the feminist interpretation of the story or and i shouldn't say the feminist i'm sure there are multiple feminist interpretations Mm. of the story but i think the three most significant characters in the story ultimately are theodora eleanor and eleanor's mother um and Again, sure. there are multiple interpretations, and depending on which one you choose, you know, it might make what I just said seem more true or less true. But I think overall, even within the like puzzle box full of of blank spaces that Jackson allows us to fill in somewhat, I think those are the three most like fleshed out um, characters and sets of relationships. What? Um, and I think there's yeah. an uh, undergrad or indeed a grad paper to be written on the the parallels between <laughs> Theodora and Eleanor's mother. Um, and again, you know, if you want to go there, the, sure. the sexual undertones to that, like um, the 50s are an era when where yeah. all the men are writing male characters with Freudian undertones. And this could be like the feminist, uh, uh, you know, uh-huh. answer or inversion answer even. Um, at this point, I'm just yeah. wildly throwing out theses that I really should what? support with, you know, their own ten minutes yeah. of discussion a piece. But um, what, yeah, what it makes me think of a little bit is um the concept of the trauma plot. <laughs> sure. Um, and that's because you can say that Eleanor did undergo trauma through her caretaking of her mother Um, which again um in with the use of the term gaslighting this is us casting this in very 2020s right you know pop psychology terminology this is not vocabulary that jackson or her original readers in the late 50s early 60s would have used that's fine i'm just pointing that no yes And, and and that's valid to point that out um and i think in different terms, I'm not sure what terms the the concepts would still be there, because uh, it, it's you know people have have known ultimately that trauma really just sticks you in a place, right. 
And so Eleanor is stuck. If, if you take that concept that because and, and it ties right in with this whole waiting theme too. that. So if, if Eleanor's trauma regarding her caretaking of her mother has stuck her in that period, in that mindset, in that place, um, and you can see that literally with her being haunted by her mother. She cannot escape her mother. Um, yeah. It's, it's even presented in her relationship with her sister, uh, who's maybe the, the closest tie she has to her mother. Um, like, and it's a blood tie. Speaking in broad terms, I'm almost tempted to say that her relationship with her sister is just another mm-hmm. aspect of her relationship with her mother. Like... The sister is not a real character. It's she's yep. just the mother extended almost. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, just how little the sister is there, and how mm-hmm. ethereal, how how non concrete the sister really is. Um, the only way the sister persists in the text of the book is through the car. Mm-hmm. Um, which, what does Eleanor do with the car? at the end of the book is destroy it. Right. Um, and along am with I herself. remembering right? Did they, did they get the car from the mother? I, I feel like there's some kind of connection to there. They might have. The I think, I think they might have. It was an inheritance, a joint inheritance sort of thing. Yeah. That sounds right. Um, and so just symbolically that is unsticking herself. She is, right. she is destroying the tie. Um, that that holds her there she has to destroy destroy herself along with it which is interesting but yeah that's that that's how she frees herself is by destroying this thing and it's not necessarily specifically emphasized in that way that she has to destroy this thing when, when she goes through this this point of um running into the tree um uh it's it's like the last page of the book yeah um it says with what she perceived as quick cleverness she pressed her foot down hard on the accelerator they can't run fast enough to catch me this time she thought which is so it's phrased as an escape but by now they must be beginning to realize i wonder who noticed first she goes on um i'm really doing it she thought turning the wheel to send the car directly at the great tree at the curve of the driveway i'm really doing it i'm doing this all by myself now at last this is me i'm really really doing it by myself so she is thinking of it in terms of uh, a liberation maybe to put it in those sorts of sort of feminist uh, terminology Um, but at the same time there's a conflict in herself because the next paragraph uh, has her thinking why why am I doing this why am I doing this why don't they stop me says yeah um i don't know that this is where i would go for like some kind of triumphant feminist message i think that it's like it's 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 close like it's like she she's approaching some sort of triumph some sort of maybe liberation some sort of movement out of where she is stuck but she also is seeing it's not actually successful in the last moments i think i brought up earlier i think it was earlier this episode or else last episode um just like the specter of like a shakespearean tragedy and i think that this last um like her end really feels like a shakespearean tragedy where 
uh, mm-hmm. the reader understands like what almost what should have happened or what did happen in a moment of, moment of clarity and the main character maybe understands that too but only too late mm-hmm. um, is is that connected and and in what way to the through line of the twelfth night quote oh yeah book? uh I mean, I think the answer to your yes or no question is yes. Um, <laughs> I think the the and in what way is a very valid and excellent question that I would actually have to write the like, you know, fifteen page term paper on to like sure uh, really get to an answer I was I was satisfied or pleased with, um, especially in the in the concept that like Twelfth Night, obviously one of Shakespeare's classic comedies. But right. like all of, not all, but a lot of Shakespeare's comedies hinge on something that could turn them into tragedies, you know, almost oh, as yeah. a matter of chance and vice versa. Um, both Romeo and Juliet and Othello, you know, the, the mm-hmm. plots, they're, they're like one story beat away from being comedies. Um, Definitely. You know, Romeo and Juliet is a really funny play for the first half of it until like the tragic mm-hmm. stuff starts crashing down and it's even funny uh, for until the comic relief is killed yeah exactly yeah exactly <laughs> um right at what i think modern screenwriters would call the midpoint uh yep. right about halfway through um uh you know othello notoriously is like the plot kind of hinges on what were normally comic tropes the idea of like a a misplaced mm-hmm. handkerchief, you know, being a, yep. a comedic uh, a trope. Um, uh, you know, so like, I, I, you know, Jackson was clearly both brilliant and conversant with, with her literature. And, and so I think there's Definitely. probably something there as far as like using this, this uh, textual leitmotif of a, a uh, quote from one of Shakespeare's comedies and then having this very really specifically Shakespearean tragedy um happen yeah. as the the climax of the book or the the yeah um right yeah i think i again i think there's very much something there i'm very much uh outlining what would be like the the barest like half page outline of something that should turn into a 20 page paper sure really briefly i'd say so the the quote is um journeys end in lovers meeting which is part of a song from 12th night um but just taking that quote itself journey means something is happening and this whole book has been about waiting and so it's uh, Eleanor isn't taking a journey; she's waiting for the journey. So at the same time, but she then she she's... frames it in terms yeah. of jur- a journey in her own yep. head. And as right. I pointed out last episode, like a significant chunk of the start of this book is devoted to her journey to Hill House, which I don't think right. right. That's that's the journey is her going to. This I was going to say I don't think that makes and this... then waiting for the end. It doesn't make the story a journey the one that we read but no. the story that she's in in her own head is a journey yes. yeah right um but i think we we could say that it's ultimately she's trying to 
maybe subconsciously, maybe even not consciously at all, um, maybe it's even outside of her consciousness, trying to get to the journey's end, you know, journey's end and lovers meeting, the assumption is she's meeting Luke mm. and assuming that that's her lover um, that she's destined to meet. But I think what we're ultimately trying to get at is she is trying to end her journey in love for herself. Mm. Uh, which she gets so close to. And like maybe too little too late. And that's where the tragedy yeah. is. Like tragedy is about that timing right. that you get the right answer too right. late. Um and that's that last paragraph of the second to last part of the last chapter where she's asking that why why don't they right. stop me because she needs them to stop her because she's she she wants to live she wants to survive she wants to be herself and love herself but it's too little right. too late she she's trying to make herself real but it's too right. late uh and on that note um i think you know there's like lots more i think we could discuss about this book um i touched on it or, i mean both of us touched on it in our different ways but almost the love yeah. triangle between eleanor theodora and luke um that's like that's where not all paper. of the arrows <laughs> go in both directions i think um I think Eleanor or I think Theodora and Luke both like Eleanor. I think Luke likes Theodora. Where Eleanor's arrows go to one or both of them or neither, I think is a very open question. Um and like that's a whole thing. Uh yeah, it's you know, that that could be its own its own discussion and um I think it would ultimately tie into everything we just discussed, especially in the the last uh mm -hmm part of this this episode so far um but unfortunately we have to stop somewhere and i think <laughs> um as far as like putting a, a button on an incomplete discussion i think michael what you just said was uh uh probably it um at least as far as Thank we're you. you know gonna get without uh making this a a dan carlin-esque four and a half hour podcast uh <laughs> that said um, we do have some business to attend to, uh, here at the end. Can I, can I just like give one more please, little yeah, thing? Please. Yeah. I was like, this is, I was going to ask if you had any last things. So, uh, please go ahead. Just like here, here's my last little thing is I am convinced that the creators of the board game betrayal at house on the hill were inspired by this. Book. I mean, the, even the title is like so close like, the title is close enough, but then the fact that it's just a bunch of people, four, ultimately, maybe five, like, sitting around exploring a house that doesn't make sense until something happens, it's, yeah, it's the book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, in in, in some so, ways, it's it. like every haunted house book, but also it's, you know, it's not not that. It's this yeah, one. for sure. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, uh, very good. Any other last thoughts you would like to share, Michael? No, not without assigning 20 term papers and making this a Mondo book where we discuss it for four episodes. 
Uh, something it exactly. does not not deserve, I would say. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that said, uh, our first order of business here at the end, Michael, of four episodes where uh, neither of us did lose, um, that means we both lose. Very disappointed. Excuse me? Nothing. Excuse me? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, well, since you, uh, uh, lied to me and said it was nothing, um, I'm gonna continue. Um, Michael, I, unless you have, like, some kind of punishment burning your, a hole in your pocket, I want to follow the, um, uh, tradition that we've set up of, uh, Borrowing from yes. the Freddy the Pig uh, book series, which uh, check out <laughs> our other Tapestry podcast, Freddy Goes to a Podcast, um, where we read all of these books for context. Um, one set of bad guys in one of the Freddy the Pig books uh, introduced us to this charming concept um, that I don't, I think we just came to call it this the Shakespeare race. Um, and it's yes. the idea that two people just try to say some Shakespeare faster than each other. I think in the, maybe in the, mm -hmm. in Freddy, they like try to sing faster, but like at least one of us is. It, it's like there, one is singing, one is playing the piano and oh, that's like right. each other. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, at least one of us is bad at music on this show. So, yeah. uh, this is our version of it. Michael, I have sent you a link. It is going to be, and here's the here's the thing I got to do since I am the um, the controller of this show. It is a short one, Great. so you're not going to beat me on breath, uh -huh. uh, <laughs> or maybe you are, and I should be ashamed. Anyway, um, this is the uh, uh, just song from Twelfth Night Act Two, Scene Three, um, from which uh, Journey's End and Lovers Meeting is a uh, uh taken uh yes. so michael if you agree we will uh uh, perf uh perform and by perform i mean say as fast as possible with as little art as possible this uh are, this are we saying passage. the stage direction or just the speech no we'll say just song. the speech i was going to okay. address that all uh, right thank you thank you all right in three two one Oh, mistress mine, oh, where mistress are you mine, roaming? Where are you oh, stay roaming? Oh, stay and hear your true love's coming. coming that can sing that both can high and low. Trip no further, pretty sweet and journeys and lovers meeting. Every wise man send up no. What is love? Tis not hereafter. Present mirth hath present laughter. What's to come is still and sure and delay their lives no plenty. Then come kiss me, sweet and twenty youths. Stuff that will not endure. Ah, I think you beat me. Ouch. You all right? Did you pull something? Uh, Yeah, I mean, that one hurt. So good. Now, why did that one hurt, Michael? I don't know because it was short and like there was an end in sight, and so I knew I wouldn't have to wait long before I got there, and so I pulled something while while sprinting towards the end. Huh. Well, uh, I would have some fa uh, follow up remarks, but this is a family podcast, so I'm gonna mm -hmm. just move on. Um. All right. Uh. We have both been punished. Um, 
Yep. We move on now to ratings. Uh, Michael. Whew. Our first rating, according to the script that I have to strictly follow always all the time, um, is to rate the scotch uh, from one to okay. five stars. Whew. Okay. Bit, uh, man, this is... This is something. Uh, I, I've got I've got to put this somewhere between a three and a three point five, and so I'm going to rate this a three point two five, <laughs> three and a quarter. I don't think you're allowed to do that, um, but please continue. While I'm doing it, uh, this it's so th- this is a young Scotch. It's ten years age. Yeah, and you can tell that it's young. And it's sweet. Um, it is. It is extremely fruity and sweet. Like it's. It's almost juicy uh, in its sweetness. So in that sense, it's. It's a. It's just a. A kitty scotch. Sure. Um. Which which. I I don't know if that lowers it exactly, but it. It. It definitely is a factor. <laughs> um, but at the same time, this is such an easy drinking scotch. Um, like may, it, maybe that's that's ultimately where it goes is that that it, it contributes to it being so easy to drink. It's so smooth. It's a Highland, so it's not terribly smoky. Um, it just feels classic. <laughs> Uh, th- this is a scotch that just feels like it is a, a staple-ish scotch. And so I I would not be sad to drink this again. I would not be sad to, to purchase this and just have this regularly on the shelf. Like, this might be one of the, like, in the rotation of the main shelf of scotch whiskeys that I would have along with um, like a number of Glenfiddichs um, or others uh, along those lines that this, this is, th- I, I could pull this off the shelf and I would, I could serve it. I could drink it. I could enjoy this anytime, pull it out. And it's, it's great. Sure. It, it's not like my favorite, but I would not be sad to drink this again. Yeah. Um, similarly, I think, uh, I uh, come down solidly as, like, a 3.5 on this one. Because um, to me, like, a 2.5 is, like, perfectly middle of the road. South of 2.5, I start to feel like I'm insulting a scotch. Uh, <laughs> to me, a, like, 3.0 is just, like, a scotch I wouldn't be sorry to drink. Um, and then the farther north we get of 3, it's, like... A scotch I would actively be happy to drink, um, and sure. I agree with a lot of what you said as far as the tasting notes go. To me, it is not like intensely sweet in the way that like a lot of bourbons tend to be very sweet, or mm. um, a lot of other, uh, even some other you know scotches that I've had, uh, especially Highlands. Like, but it's not not sweet. I, I agree with you about, like, the juiciness. Like, that's a good descriptor for it. Like, it, it doesn't necessarily feel 
overly sweet, but it definitely feels like there's like there's fr a fruit juicy aspect to it. Um, and it's it, you're right. It's like it's not super peaty or smoky at all. It's a very balanced Highland, and like all of those things normally are like things that would I don't necessarily prefer. So like part of the reason the rating isn't higher is just that like. I prefer, as you know, you and anyone who's listened to any other ratings of mine know, like, I prefer the smokier stuff, the, you know, um, somewhat more out there uh, uh, scotches often. Um, but mm -hmm. it's such an easygoing scotch. It doesn't try to be too sweet and it doesn't try to be too aggressive. It's just mm -hmm. nice. Like, it's just like, it's that, it's that friend that, like, you don't keep up with as much as you should, but like anytime you see them at like a party or a reunion or something, it's like you can just hang out with them and it's actively nice. It's not just like you're marking time and you're always like, why don't I like talk to you more? Like it's, there's, there's a certain comfort to it. I think, <laughs> um, as I think I said, when I first introduced this at the beginning of, uh, this, this like four episodes ago, whatever, um, it is, I read somewhere that it is the most popular uh, single malt in Scotland. And I understand because it's like, it's got all the things that make popularity in the sense that it like exists right at the center of a bunch of Venn diagrams mm -hmm. of like what you want out of scotch. Like if you're buying this for a group of yeah. people who all like scotch, but like different things about scotch, like... This one will probably serve most or all of them, I would say. Maybe not, again, as their favorite, yeah. but definitely as, like, a, a perfectly good, you know, party scotch kind of thing. Sure. Uh, so, yeah. Um, I'd say su substantially we agree. Sorry, Nat. Uh, now we... Well, I was going to say, oh. I think your 2.5 is my 3.0. And so your 3.5 is my 3.25. Sure, yeah. No, again, yeah. Like, <laughs> so, very similar yeah. overall, I think. I think, which is to say, yeah. I think we agree. Again, sorry, Nat. Um, <laughs> Michael, rate this book. Rate it buy, borrow, or forget about it. Man, this is a buy. It's like... It... I, I said at the end of our discussion there that without assigning 20 term papers and reading all of them, I don't have anything more to say. And that's exactly what I want to do with this. I want to assign 20 term papers and I want to read every single one of those term papers and I want to discuss them. And I want to, I want to keep coming back to this. I want people to talk to me about this book and I want to talk to people about this book. This is a good <laughs> book and people need to read it. Talk to me about it. So buy it so you can talk to me about it and read it. <laughs> yeah. Um, headline is I'm going to once again agree with you and say buy. Um, I will say like at different points, including while reading it and after reading it, I was at all three of our ratings on this book. Um, as I was getting towards the end and certain things that, you know, we talked about them, but it, it was clear that certain things would not be resolved in, like, the way I thought they should be resolved. Mm -hmm. um, I strongly considered, like, oh, this is a forget about it. Like, this is a mess. Um, 
I think sure. when I did get to the conclusion and I started to understand what was going on, I think I maybe bumped it up to a borrow and just thought like, okay, borrow this from the library, see what you think. Um, as I read like the introduction and read like, you know, Neil Gaiman was asked what his, I think, top scariest book was and he picked this one or... And not only him, but some other authors. Ooh. And it was, like, not just because it was Neil Gaiman, but because that recommendation made me think of, like, okay, why would Neil Gaiman, for example, say that this is one of his top scariest books? Like, started making mm -hmm. me, like, reconsider and, and get into some of those those layers. And then it was, like, once you start doing that, like, you know, it's it's again, almost endless to the point that we could easily do four episodes on this, mm -hmm. let alone more than that. Um, right. And so it, I, I just kind of, uh, 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 Dante-like, ascended from the depths of um, forget about it through mm -hmm. the uh, the purgatory of uh, borrow it, and ultimately I'm going to, and, and if nothing else, you know, these two episodes that we've just done in our discussion and the incompleteness of our discussion um put the capper on that i'm gonna say bye buy it do it uh yes. now that said michael um final rating is the pairing perfect match pretty good match slight mismatch total mismatch um i'm gonna say total mismatch uh because this so we, we we discussed i think even in our previous episode the idea that uh, a book can be counterpointed by a scotch in a in a pleasant yeah, way yeah i think we said that but at the this second is midnight library episode maybe yeah but with with this the, the counterpoint is is too much and it, it's this book does not want to counterpoint this book demands a scotch that is equally <laughs> going to mess you up sure so total mismatch um, <laughs> i think substantially i agree i am going to say slight mismatch because here's the like this is basically devil's advocate of in response to your argument mm. the only argument i can uh uh fathom to point us towards more of a good match is that this scotch is deceptively simple in this in a similar way that the book is deceptively simple that there's much more going on in ah. both the scotch and the book than you would think on like sort of a surface level reading of either one um now that said uh mm -hmm. i agree with everything that you said that like i think this book calls for a much meaner scotch and a much like this is a very smooth scotch and i think this book calls for a very not smooth scotch like even a like a lafroy would would match this book better or something um so that's why i come down on slight mismatch like i was all the way at total mismatch and then was bounced back but not far enough to not say slight mismatch hmm. uh all right finally um let's talk about our next two books uh the first one we will be discussing is yours michael so uh let's yes i sent you a package you did and i found it a couple minutes ago and now i have lost it 
Oh, again. Okay, here it is. Okay. Oh, All right, I've pulled out from the package a book by an author, Thomas McGuan. McGuan? Um, it says, yeah. Nobody's Angel, a novel. Yes, this is this is my pick. Uh, Nobody's Angel by Thomas McWayne. Um, uh, do you know anything about this? No, book? nothing about the book or the author. I am on the same page. I know nothing. Okay. Um, now here's the thing. Here, so I'm just gonna state why I picked yeah. it. Um, I picked it because approximately a month ago, my wife and I were watching Christmas movies. And in one particular Christmas movie, um, <laughs> I, I, I was remarking on some of the, the knowledge I had about the background production of this, this movie. And then an, another scene popped up, and I was wondering whether that was intentional uh, by the, the filmmakers, the prop master, what have you. The, the movie was Home Alone. Sure. And in Home Alone, there's the famous fake movie within the movie uh, of um, angels without wings or whatever mm -hmm. that is. What is it? Angels something. Um, the, it's it's the, the, the movie where there's the gangster who shoots the other gangster and is like, keep the change, you filthy animal. Yeah. Um, which we refer referenced in our episodes on Filthy Animals uh, because it was explicitly referenced in Filthy Animals. But then, um, after you leave Kevin McAllister at his house with that movie, uh, you see his family on the plane, and his father on the plane is sitting and reading a book, and he is reading this book. <laughs> <laughs> um so this book, Nobody's Angel by Thomas McGuane. And so I'm wondering if the idea of the angel concept um, is connected with this book. It's a Western. Um, it's a, about an army guy who comes home with some PTSD, perhaps, and... It, that that's it. Uh, that's that's all I know. Sure. Um, so we'll find out anything else about this. So this might be a total train yeah. wreck, and I'm not sorry because <laughs> I am glad to hear that because like you sent me this book weeks ago, uh, a service yes. I failed to provide for you, um, which we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> but uh, I will admit that I am I am good at like not opening a, say, Schrodinger's cat box for, like, a few days. <laughs> I am not good at opening it, not opening it, rather, for a few weeks. So I did <laughs> uh, open this package and look at it, and I did have some questions. I, I haven't, like, I've tried not to look into the text. It's, like, the, the text of the story itself, but just looking at the, sure. um, you know, back cover and, mm -hmm. and so forth, like, I did have some questions um and potentially some criticisms and obviously i'm gonna read it so like i'm not gonna <laughs> just judge it by literally judge it by the cover so like uh, there's there's that but like um i'm glad to hear that this is not like something that like spoke to your soul that i'm gonna have to like 
delicately <laughs> dance around telling you it's horrible if it is. Now that said, no, I'm I'm fully expecting this is either going to be a total train wreck or a magnificent transcendent experience. Yeah. One or the uh, other. I agree. I was going to say that said like that is the most charming reason to pick this exact <laughs> book. Um and I am on board for it uh in that way. Um yes. Uh by the way, the, the title is Angels with Even Filthier Souls. Um, oh, no, that's that's yeah. in Home Alone 2. Angels with Filthy Souls. Is that not souls uh, where the quote comes filthy from? Filthy Wings or something like. Um, All right, we'll figure this out uh, by the time we record. Comes from Angels... Because, like, there's that film yeah. within the film in Home Alone, and then there's the sequel to the sequel okay, within okay, the sequel gotcha. in Home Alone uh, I will fully admit, I was single digits years old probably the last time I saw Home Alone, so. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. Um, no, I was going to say also, like, in bringing it full circle to this book you didn't necessarily like that much, um, the book Filthy Animals, uh, um... Oh, yeah. Like, uh, this, this, I feel like I may have mentioned on this, uh, podcast before, uh, uh, that I historically have followed Brandon Taylor on Twitter, and, like, that was actually the first place I found out that he was an author, period. Um, and, uh, he... In some of his Twitter threads, he talks about paperwork movies, which is, like, movies where there's just, like, a lot of paperwork, as far as I can tell. And I think he's kind of entranced by the idea of, like, fictional paperwork, like, within a movie. And the idea that a text could exist within a movie. And, you know, uh, I get the impression that, like me, he has paused multiple YouTube videos and also movies where there's a bookcase in the background to... Um, uh, <laughs> you know, try to read some of the titles that exist there um, for no real reason other than some kind of a, a fixation. Um, so, like, that, mm -hmm. this just feels with, like, his title, Filthy Animals, coming from Home Alone, this book coming from Home Alone, like, somehow it feels very completionist uh, in a way that you probably sure. didn't intend. Um but yeah, okay. I'm I'm much more excited about this Great. book uh, now that you've explained it than I uh, was when I secretly looked at it before. Uh, Michael, would you like Very to good. know Very what good. we are reading after that? Yes, please. Uh, now again, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, I had all the time I could possibly want to send you this book, and I did just uh uh pull the trigger on that today um so this book should be coming oh, to okay. you very soon uh it's obviously not to to you yet so i'm sending you uh just the the online link for it um then the book we will be reading after uh nobody's angel is called where the light fell a memoir and in my 
uh, mm. quest to be the first to bring um, new genres to the show because I believe I was the first to bring a short story collection mm-hmm. as well as a graphic novel. Um, I am now bringing this uh, memoir, which is a genre we have not uh, encountered before. Um, yeah. And like, and I'm sure we'll talk about this when we don't talk about genre uh, discussing this book. Um, but a memoir is different from an autobiography or indeed a biography because both of those uh, genres purport to tell like the story of a whole life, right? Like an autobiography tells the story of like mm-hmm. from the beginning to whenever now is, whenever the writing of the book is. Um, or a biography might tell the story of someone who has died and you're telling their whole life story. A memoir is is a literary form that's used to really tell a story that's more like a novel, I think, um, in the sense that it's more focused, it's more thematic. Right. Um, it's just that this is like a novel-ish story that happens to be true, or at least the author is claiming that it's true. Um so, in other words, I think that, like, we can use a lot of the same equipment that we use to discuss novels in the discussion of this book. Um, mm-hmm. But that said, uh, Philip Yancey... Michael, are you familiar with this author at all? So, no, he has been in sort of the um, Christian books space for a long time. I think he published his first books in, like, the 1980s. Um and his books mm. tend to have a lot to do he is he is you know very much a committed christian i don't know that he necessarily hews to one denomination or another uh he kind of seems to be a little bit cagey mm. about that in ways that make sense the more you understand about his works but um i think uh a lot of his books have to do with grief uh or re- what's currently like Hmm. these days called religious trauma um as well as with like skepticism Hmm. so he's a very literate he's a very intelligent writer um but he often he uh right what like one of his best-selling books his best-known books is called where is god when it hurts i think um so it's like uh you know he's he's sort of on that end of uh uh you know the the christian book industry but this is his memoir of his childhood um in the deep south and in sort of the uh uh what i'd be comfortable calling ultra conservative christianity of the deep south um Mm. and yeah i i i don't want to i don't want to like give too much away or, or or uh monologue about it too much here but i think that it's um a book that's very accessible both to christians and to people who aren't christians like i don't think it's a you know it's not like if if i was bringing the book i don't know jesus freaks just for a random example from my haunted evangelical past um you know it's it's not like that it's much more of like a a memoir that certainly has a particular perspective, but that I think anybody can access. Um, but sure. Uh, 
yeah, I'll say more about it when we when we discuss it. But um, I think if I say any more yeah. about it right now, I'd be at risk of prejudicing the witness. Uh, the witness here being Michael, and prejudicing yeah. just in a way that like I don't want to uh, uh, tilt your opinion one way or the other. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that's that. Great. Uh, any Fantastic. last things you'd like to say, Michael? No. All right. Uh, that said, gentle listener, thank you for listening to both parts of our discussion of The Haunting of Hill House and for staying with us overall. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch, you can do so at tapestryradio.org in the contact section. Be sure to put Scotch Talk in the subject line. Uh, we are at Room with Scotch on Twitter. Uh, at tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast, there's a form that you can fill out to submit your homework to us. Um, we won't do it well, but we will do it interesting and funny. Funny to us. Uh, and, um, you know, that's a good way to, to get your 15 minutes of fame and as much as a podcast with dozens of listeners will get you that um <laughs> that said uh feel free to check out our other shows on the tapestry radio network um the closest to this one is the show freddy goes to a podcast which is a podcast where three grown men uh talk about the freddy the pig book series that um started publishing a hundred years ago finished publishing like 75 mm -hmm. years ago so pretty relevant i'd yeah. say um right there's us play fiasco uh the didn't it finish publishing in like the 50s yeah. so that's like 50 years ago well i hate to tell you but we're in 2023 now <laughs> so 1950 was 73 <laughs> years ago i guess 1960 <laughs> would be like 63 years ago so um yeah, anyway, Us Play Fiasco is a, a podcast where we play a fiasco RPG slash improv game. Um, there's Intermission, our audio drama podcast. There's Pokemon Rollout, our Pokemon Tabletop United actual play RPG podcast. Um, yeah, uh, anything else you want to promote, Michael? No. Same, me also same. Uh, and that said, just remember, until next time, it's our party, and we'll cry if Shirley Jackson puts us in the lottery. Thanks. Love you. Bye-bye. Obscurantism and Obfuscation Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto Offered you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From, From our, our fancy, fancy to yours. To yours.